the promise of hope and change. We hear it from politicians all too often, their promises that can't be kept. But if we think about a, uh, a time in which hope would be nice, <laughs> it would be great to have a little bit of hope that uh, maybe the delays that have been put in place are coming to an end, right? As I'm recording this on um, the first Sunday of August 2020, it'd be nice if some of the lockdowns put in place, if we could have hope that soon the numbers would indicate that things were going a direction so that we could relieve some of that stress and some of those burdens on the people. Hope is a, is a rare and uh, elusive commodity this day and age. I was on the phone with some of my Canadian friends this past week and had the privilege to um, lead devotions for a ministry staff in Calgary, um, I didn't fly there or drive there or run there. I did it by Zoom. Um, but anyway, it was a nice time. And they were chatting with me earlier this week and said, wow, um, I don't envy you guys in the States with November coming just around the corner. And I said, November? I said, we never stop politicking. I mean, it's just all the time and it's incessant and uh, it just pollutes the airwaves constantly. Politicians make promises that they are completely incapable of keeping. And yet so many are so desperate for hope and change, we will believe anything. Have you ever wondered, if you think about the end times in Scripture, and it says God will send them a strong delusion and the people will believe a lie, you say there's no way that many people will believe a lie. Have you been around? I mean, have you, have you seen just how easy it is for us to believe and put all of our hope in earthly leaders and to constantly be just disappointed and shocked and in awe when things don't work out. All too often, hope is pessimistically described as a little boy did one years ago when he said, hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. It can feel that way sometimes. And Speaking of false hope, probably nothing in the world arouses more false hope than the first four hours of a diet. Yes, no? no? Okay. If you're following along in your Bibles that are in the pews, we're near page 907, I believe, if you grab one of those and follow along. And I've encouraged everybody to do that. There's a pew Bible there. Pull it out. Around page 907 is where you'll find the final text in Joel. This morning, just a quick overview of where we'll be lighting in. I love this outline, found great help from Dr. Wearsby this week. I was scribbling out some notes, sharing with a friend, and um, his headers were better than mine, so I took his, and I'm grateful for the work that he did. But I only took his headers, and here they are. A holy city, verse 17. Restored land, verses 18 and 19. A cleansed people in verse 20. And then the last one's mine, a victorious king. A victorious king. Last week we finished up by realizing the ultimate goal of enduring suffering and everything that we go through, the ultimate goal of being kind of on standby and waiting while we're waiting on God's judgment to be poured out on the wicked 
and God's blessing to be poured out on the saints. The ultimate goal shows up at the very beginning of our text this morning. It's the verse we finished with last week. So that you will know that I am the Lord your God. That's God's purpose. Paul would record that in Philippians 3 this way. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Beautiful passage. Israel, Judah, had endured great tribulation and great judgment already up to this point. We have the benefit of knowing that there's certainly more to come. There would be many more exiles. There would be many more battles. And we, unfortunately, on this side of history, know of the Holocaust. There will be more yet to come, the Bible says, in the final days. And yet Joel stands here as this little prophet, big man of God, but this minor prophet as we see in Scripture, and holding out hope to such a suffering and storied people. I know you've had a year. I've seen the same memes that you've seen that said a 2020 was an ice cream flavor, and I forget what it was. I think it was broccoli or something. If 2020 was a this, and it's this disappointing thing, and so many of us in leadership planning and execution talked about 2020 being the year of clarity and vision, how's that working for you, right? I think sometimes the old adage, uh, you want to make God laugh, make plans, comes into play. There's wisdom in planning ahead. Joel's standing here for the storied and suffering people saying there's hope. There's hope in the Lord. One Jewish proverb says, no misfortune avoids a Jewish brother or sister. No people have suffered more at the hands of their fellow men than have the Jews. Pharaoh tried to drown them. Balaam tries to curse them. The Assyrians and the Babylonians take them captive and put them into exile. Haman tries to exterminate all of them. Nebuchadnezzar puts three Jews into the fiery furnace only to discover that their God was with them and was able to deliver them. And that same God is with us and able to deliver us this morning. This book ends with a series of contrasts. Look there in the text with me, if you will. The Lord's future plans for Israel contrast with his judgment on the nations. After describing judgment against the nations, he says he's going to protect his people. He talks of blessing on his people and curse on the other. God's future covers all generations and all sin, all flesh, all ages, all stations. Here's your first point. If you're taking notes, I would write this down. Verse 17, a holy city, a holy city. Now, if you're following along on the Bible app on your phone or if you're following along online that way or you have the Grace Covenant Church church app, the notes are right there in the sermon notes section. A holy city. Got it? Look at the verse one more time. So you shall know that I am the Lord. We've covered that. Jerusalem shall be holy. 
and strangers shall never again pass through it. When I read for sermon prep and even for personal study, when I'm about to speak to an audience with multiple generations in it, I try to imagine myself as being a child in here and hearing the text sometimes. Do you ever do that? You ever think about explaining something to maybe a young middle schooler or something? You don't get to use a lot of flowery language because you can see right through that, right? And you don't try to impress with what you know. They just want to be able to understand. And so when I see strangers there will never again pass through it, I thought, what would I think if I were Erilyn or even Asher hearing that read? Strangers, well, yeah, because stranger danger. You know, you can't, don't let strangers in. And then, well, I thought we were supposed to be kind to people we didn't know and be nice. And why would God not let strangers in? Well, this is foreign invaders is kind of a better picture of what's going on here. And, and we see this parallel. I don't want you to get there yet. Some of you are so smart, so spiritual. I can see it. I can see little halos and angels flying around. It's funny. But you're, so, you're already there thinking about heaven. Let me deal with this for a minute, and then we'll get to heaven. But I want you to think about the fact that the only way to keep something holy is to keep some things out. In our study, uh, as uh, with my two oldest sons, we're working through Disciplines of a Godly Young Man together by R. Kent Hughes, and we talked about the discipline of the mind, and it's two chapters. One of the disciplines of the mind is to reject some things. Even counselors who are not born-again believers will tell you there's some things that you try to block out. There's some things that you push back on. There's some negative thinking we real uh, educated folks in the South call it stinking thinking, right? That you push back on, self-defeating talk, all those things, delusions of grandeur, you push back on those things. But to keep something holy, you do have to keep some things out. And the promise here that Jerusalem and that the people of Judah and Israel have never known is that Jerusalem would be holy. Remember, even when David was there, David as King David, God's anointed man was scheming against Bathsheba and her husband. That happened in the city. So Jerusalem, for it to be holy, there has to be folks kept out and got in holy. Jerusalem, the site of the Lord's holy sanctuary, will be holy in the sense that it will never again be defiled by foreign invaders. This hasn't happened yet, but it will. It will. The people of Israel longed for a day when Jerusalem would sit without controversy, without scandal, and without, imagine this, a city without sin. Can you imagine that? What would it be like when it's purified as a standard of all conduct, society, and worship? The Bible teaches us that throughout both Testaments, there is a substantive hope for this. That Jerusalem, one day again, will be the earthly focus God's rule and reign here on the earth but when we hear holy city can I talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ online and in the room this morning when we hear holy city we who are in Christ even those of you watching or are seated here who are not yet disciples of Jesus but you know enough about the Bible to know that when you hear the word holy city your minds start rightly pointing to, to the city of God heaven we start thinking with John in Revelation chapter 21 who sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John hears with a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, watch this, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Joel is speaking to a suffering people who just want a little bit of hope. And he's saying one day the presence of God will make the city holy. They can't imagine all that's wrapped up in that prophecy. John sees it. He sees a place where God wipes away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things will have passed away and he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, he says to John. These words are trustworthy and true. Who is seated on the throne? The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The only one who can satisfy the thirsty. He says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. All who are in Christ this morning, hear me church, have a legit hope, a living hope that we will see God's holy city. It's not just a pipe dream. It's not just an escapism for us to think about a fantasy world that we have constructed. No, we are bound for a city. Our faith has written a check of hope that God's word says that he will cash. I'm going to a city whose builder and maker is God. Can the church say amen? I'm thankful there is a holy city that never will fade. We see a holy city. We see a restored land. There's your second note this morning. Verses 18 and 19. A restored land. A restored land. Look at the text. In that day, mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow. Just notice with me, if you're looking in your Bibles or on the screen, however you're following along, just look at the language here of flow. Can we talk about that? Dripping. Uh, shall flow with milk. I have to tell you, I'm a little concrete, more concrete than abstract. My wife is the artistic one. So I'm just telling you my little simple mind. When I see hills, I'm thinking, oh, that would stink. Just milk coming down. Anyway, sorry. Hills uh, flowing with milk. Stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. A fountain shall come forth from the house of God with water. This is incredible. Ezekiel spoke of this. Amos spoke of this. Imagine this where there's barrenness all around. Now we've experienced what we would call and what the meteorologists classified as drought. You've seen it on the news. Um, last several years, right? The report would come, our drought report, and it would be all these red charts on the screen, and I thought, man, drought. And yet I would go to my tap and turn on water and it worked, you know? I mean, we were told not to water our lawns for a certain length of time we've been in you know we've been in some droughts and some shortages in our but nothing like that when there was a drought there wasn't a faucet to go and turn on there was desolation crops livestock everything was decimated and God here is speaking of there'll be a time when you won't have to worry about that anymore Israel's end time prophecy if you will their hopes were often described as agricultural abundance. Now that's a language we don't talk about much today. That's not how our society, certainly south end of Charlotte and the surrounding areas, uh, which are fueled by banking and technology and customer service and uh, energy and all types and different things and construction apparently, because that's happening everywhere. But I'm telling you, they lived, this was an agrarian society. They knew this was the language they spoke. And even in future age, there was abundance, paradise, kind of this picture of Eden being restored. 
And I would not describe myself, nor I think could we align with environmentalist extreme policies or environmentalism to the extreme degree. But we were called to steward after God's creation and to take care of it and to make decisions that make sense and to protect one another and to protect the land. And God here is saying, even your best efforts won't work. I'm going to have to restore the land. The Eden of the future age is a stark night and day difference, though. Look, to the devastation of the locust plague that they had just experienced. Imagine this contrast of hope. Joel is telling them, I know everything's just fallen apart and you've gotten a blessing from God a little bit, but there's coming a day where there'll be no more locusts that will devour and the land will be whole. And this will be for God's people because verse 19, remember, look back at the text, there's still desolation. For the enemies of God, there is desolation and a desolate wilderness. At the time, Israel or Judah would have identified those as Egypt, Egypt and Edom. But we know the enemies of God have a fate too. God's Word uses the picture of thirst to describe our own spiritual longings. Psalm 42, you probably know it, it's a devotional psalm. My soul thirsts for God as the deer pants for flowing streams. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Isaiah 55, the Bible says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come, lean in to the Lord, the prophet says. I read it just a few moments ago from Revelation 21. Jesus speaking said, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The Bible's final invitation from Revelation 22 says, The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price come. The Word of God, watch this church, begins and ends with this picture of flowing rivers. From Eden's garden in Genesis to the river of life in the new city of God. Are you thirsty this morning? I recognize there are new age connotations to the word but let me unpack a few of those are you thirsty this morning not for attention that'll never satisfy are you thirsty this morning not for lustful sexual gratification that will never satisfy are you thirsty this morning not for power possessions or position that well will run dry are you thirsty for water which never fades Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled and satisfied. Jesus says to a thirsty Samaritan woman, everyone who drinks of the water that you're drawing from will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The land of Israel will be restored. And those who come to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah will enjoy and inhabit the land of plenty. The earth will be made new for all the bride of Christ. Second Peter 3 says, according to his promise, we wait for the new heaven and the new earth 
Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. This war-torn, storied people are offered hope for a holy city, a restored land, and number three this morning, write it down, a cleansed people. A cleansed people. Joel 3.20, and we'll, we'll kind of piggyback off of the second half of verse 17 again, so you need your Bibles open to see this. But look at Joel 3.20 there. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. We see forever and generations there, and we think that's about time. No, this is about people. <laughs> this is about a people who will live on and on and on. Even a glimpse back at verse 17, the second part of it, if you see there, it says, And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. That part we talked about before. Why is this possible? Well, it's possible from the rest of the passage we've looked at and built up to here that the Lord is the one who provides refuge. It's not the ingenuity of man. We don't figure out a way to restore the land. It doesn't happen. We don't figure out a way to create a holy city without sin. It doesn't happen. Utopia doesn't exist. God himself does this. He's the refuge. He's the stronghold. And because of the Lord's presence among his people, the death, burial, and resurrection, and soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jerusalem will be holy. And we will be with a people that will be clean. I'm reminded, as are you, that Jerusalem sinned well. Can I just say it that way? Over and over and over again, Jerusalem would sin. Just think back through the judges in the Old Testament. They would get, everything would start to get okay, and then everybody would do what was right in their own eyes, and God would raise up a judge. And everything would get kind of corrected, and then it would happen again. Then God would send prophets. Then God would send this, and God would send that. It's amazing how uh, faithful Israel was to sinning. It's amazing how faithful we are sometimes. To our own sinful, selfish desires. We're reminded that Israel sinned over again. We're reminded that God in his goodness over and over and over again called them back to himself. But God's ultimate act of love was sending his dear precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to atone not only for Judah here in Joel 3, not only for Israel, not just for the Gentile of the Bible days, but for all of humanity, the sins of the whole world. There's enough atonement in the blood of Jesus for. The Bible says in Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by His Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the, watch, hope of eternal life. We're heirs to hope of eternal life with a cleansed people because of Christ alone. We talked about it earlier. For a city to be holy, for a people to be clean, that means that some things have to be kept out. It's unpopular, but y'all should know me by now. That don't scare me. The Bible says in Revelation 21, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs. Probably should have said cats since it's a negative thing. Sorry, just kidding. Dogs, I'll get males for that, I'm sure. Sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Do you get that? Inside this holy city, Inside this restored land, with this cleansed people, there'll be no more politics. Boy, that, you may not be an expressive worshiper, but that's enough to get a tear over, I think, as an American citizen. No more politics. No more bullying. No more posturing or trying to read somebody and figure out what their angle is. No more empty promises, but a royal people with the Holy Spirit flowing through their veins, ruling and reigning forever with Christ. God calls us into community on this side of eternity, in the church, a community of people who've been washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a resurrected Savior. This, this gathering on-site and online gives us a taste, not the function of what we do here, but us interacting with one another, singing the songs of Zion together, confronting one another lovingly, helping one another be built up in our most holy faith, laboring for the Lord Jesus Christ together, winning the lost, rescuing those who are perishing together as a work, reaching, going where Christ hasn't been. This is a taste of our togetherness for eternity. Israel had hope for a holy city, a restored land, a cleansed people, but all of this hope is concrete, not just a fleeting hope, not a false hope like the first four hours of your diet. It's a concrete hope because of, number four, a victorious king. That final verse there points us to the king. Do you see it? Joel here speaking on behalf of the Lord, saying, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Another rendering of that passage could be, I will acquit the blood guilt that I have not acquitted. So I'm going to, it's actually, the language there is such that it can be read both ways and both work. You get it? I'm going to forgive what needs to be forgiven. I'm going to avenge what needs to be avenged. Now we see those things as polar opposites there, but the beauty of the language here being so close remind us that they're not a conflict to God. God's love blesses those that are in Christ. God's perfectness and holiness does that. And God's perfectness and holiness stands still perfect and holy and in love for those who are outside of Christ. He's a great God. He is a ruling sovereign. His kingdom will never end. Luke says he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Not the people, Jesus and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, 
but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and you will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you, O Lord, are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Like a fierce lion, God will roar out of Zion. He will conquer the enemy and reward the saint. When the lamb becomes the lion, the Bible says in Revelations 5, the nations tremble. This is our God. This is our victorious, glorious king. When we suffer hurt and when we suffer harm from others, we want justice. Israel had suffered hurt and harm from others, and they no doubt were ready to go a-warring after anything as soon as they got the resources to do it. We long to see things made right, and we want to be a part of making them right often, especially when we've been hurt or we've been harmed. We can be tempted toward revenge, an eye for an eye. We feel like it's our right, it's our duty, but God's perfect justice enables us to forgive those who hurt us, to release those who harm us, because we know that God Himself will make all things right, which will include converting that person if they come to know the Lord through the power of the gospel. What a great outcome. But if not, God's justice will include punishing the wicked in a just way. Joel ends by describing Zion, God's holy city, as high and holy, safe and secure, something Israel never knew and never experienced and won't without Christ seated on the throne of David. Just as God's judgment has been described in images of war and devastation, now His blessing is being pictured in terms of peace and plenty. The Lord reigns in Zion and all is well with His people. I asked on our social media page a few weeks ago, some of you, what your favorite hymn was. And even asked our Sunday school or community group insert appropriate small group name here, group that we meet on Sunday nights virtually, what's your favorite hymn? And we talked about some for a minute. And It Is Well came up a couple times. There's a little bit of that that we sing by faith now, don't you? When peace like a river attendeth my way, you know, you say that while we're singing it, that first verse, the fire truck's hiring will start off and go to, and we're reminded there, there's no peace here. There's turmoil everywhere. I don't know if you've ever had a Sunday morning like I had as a young person. Teens, can I talk to you for a minute? You ever had a day where you're like, like I'm on top of the world. You're ready to go out and take on the world. And before you get to the car, something or someone or today, maybe a text or a tweet or something's hit you and you're already discouraged. Somebody's called you out on something or maybe even the enemy has allowed something to enter your mind to say something. You're never, yeah, that was good, fun church, but you're never going to live that out. You're going to go home and fail the second you get home. Yeah. When peace like a river attendeth my way. And then we sing, it is well. If you're in a good church with you know, multiple parts, the, other, the basses go, it is well. They start singing back to you. It's great. It always sounds good. We sing some of those songs by faith. Church, there's coming a day where we don't have to sing that by faith. We will be in the presence of the king and all will be well. Henry gave us this in his uh, commentary, summarized this promise three ways. 
He said there's eternity with Christ brings us purity, plenty, and perpetuity. You could tell he was an old school preacher. They all start with the same letter. That's how you know it's inspired. (laughs) Plenty, purity, and perpetuity. In a day and an age where false hope, listen to me church, is being weaponized and genuine hope is elusive. There's hope for God's people. Real, substantive, soon-to-be-realized hope for a holy city, a restored land, a cleansed people, and the rule and reign of a victorious king. Are you hopeful today? If not, cast yourself on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know how to do that, come find me after service. I'll walk you through how to do that. We have elders and deacons and men and women of God in this building that are itching to lead somebody to a living relationship with Christ. Brother or sister, those of you that are in Christ, though, are you losing hope? Make sure that you're tethering it to the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't lose hope. If you fix your eyes on Him, if you fix your eyes, though, on all the moving traffic, and don't step out of the traffic and be still and know that He's God, it's hard to maintain hope. Stay hopeful. Make sure it's tethered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you this week to read of heaven. Imagine the new earth. Dream of unbroken fellowship with people where there's no more sin. Fix your eyes on a victorious and resurrected king. Would you stand with me this morning as they're coming back to the instruments? We're going to worship the Lord in song. I'm going to ask you, since we're all here, if you don't mind, to go ahead and put your masks back on, the things we have to say today, so we can sing and have freedom to do that. There's some lyric to a song that I jotted down this morning, was meditating in on the way in, just before we pray. It's from a, a modern day hymn called Christ is Mine Forevermore. Listen to this final verse. It says, And mine are keys to Zion's city, where beside the king I walk, For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Let's pray. O Father, hasten that great resurrection day when your command will go forth and none will walk in disobedience or sin. Return, O Lord. Let your kingdom come. Your desolate bride says, come. For your spirit within her says, come. The one who teaches her to pray with groanings which cannot be expressed. Lord, all creation says, come. We are waiting to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of eternity with Christ and the children of God. Lord, as you yourself have said, surely I come. Amen, Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for a city, a land, and a people with a victorious king. And the church said, amen.